In a few moments, I ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Before I do that, I just want to extend, uh, extend a warm welcome to all our guests and visitors with us this morning. We're glad to have you with us. And uh, just uh, from whether you're from local in the city or from all the way from Ohio, we're glad to have you and joining us to worship the Lord. We're, uh, and then, of course, all our regular members and worshipers here, good to see you as well. Uh, it's a joy to worship God together. And I'm blessed by our fellowship that we have together this morning. Uh, it is uh, just is one of our purposes as a church, our, our purpose of the church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. And so it is always fitting that every Sunday we gather together, we open up God's word. Because we, if we're going to become disciples, we're going to be followers, uh, lear- learners of Jesus Christ, then we need to open up God's word. And we need to look to it. And we spend some of the time looking into God's word. And I hope that uh, you'll be blessed this morning as we turn uh, to this beginning. We're actually, if you're here, you're gonna, it's kind of nice because we're actually beginning a whole new series through a new book of the Bible that we haven't studied yet. And that's the Gospel of Luke. So we're going to be looking at this, uh, this next, perhaps about two years or so, studying the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke. And this morning, I'm going to ask you to uh, look at verses 1 through 4 with me of uh, this text. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, Luke 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, and I will read God's word. This is God's word. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Let's pray one more time. Father, thank you for your word. And as we open up this new book, this Gospel of Luke, may your spirit be our teacher. Show us, Father, the significance of this gospel that's recorded in your word, your holy word. And help us, Lord, to, to especially those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, have already been taught the things about Jesus, that we may have a greater assurance, that we may have certainty to know the exact truth about the things that we have learned as disciples of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would also encourage those who are here who do not yet know Jesus as their saving Lord. They're here investigating, seeking, learning to know the truth. And Father, I pray that today you would show them more. And through their time with us, that they would learn about who Jesus is and what he has done, why he came, and, why, and the significance, the, the impact that he, his coming some 2,000 years ago and what he did on earth has upon our world today, that those who do not yet know Jesus would come to know the forgiveness of sins, the salvation and eternal life in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray these things for your glory, that you would be magnified, you would be worshipped and pleased by our worship as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, this morning... uh, Normally, um, we just go right into the introduction, but for introduction today, I thought I'd do a little something, at least fun, kind of nerdy Bible fun, okay, and that's a Bible trivia. You guys like Bible trivia? No, okay. That's just, it's just pastors, I guess. We just like Bible trivia. I remember there was once a game, you know, when Trivial Pursuit, you guys remember that game? 
okay, 80s, okay? A trivia pursuit was popular. There was a Bible trivia pursuit. You know, it was kind of fun. You just play Bible trivia pursuit. And so you, these are kind of things you would learn in Bible, Bible trivia pursuit. But, but, but even though they're trivia, you know, uh, it's still good to know it anyways, okay? So a uh, quick first question, a couple, three questions today. What is the, how many books are found in the New Testament? How many books in the New Testament? Oh, you guys are better than this morning's uh, service. I was here like, but I heard 27. Very clear. There's 27 books in the New Testament. 39 in the Old Testament. 66 books of the Bible in our, of the Bible that we have, the, our Bible. So 66 books. Now, of those 27 books in the New Testament, which one is the longest book? Acts, I heard. What? Any? Acts with confidence, please. Acts, good guess. You know, that was the same guess that morning service gave as well. They guessed Acts, but and that's a very good guess, but you're wrong. Okay. Uh, that's okay. Now, Acts, because I know why you're thinking, because it has 28 chapters, right? And Luke, that we're looking at, has 24 chapters. In fact, what other book has 28 chapters? Matthew has 28 chapters too. So man, you could have guessed Matthew too. I'll give you partial credit if you guessed Matthew or, or even Acts, okay? Because it has 28 chapters. So it's longer by chapters. But Luke, though it has 24 chapters, by the way, the answer is Luke. Though it has 24 chapters, by simply the number of verses, as well as the number of words, you know, someone counted. The words in the Greek, by the way, in the Greek Testament. Luke, actually, by maybe a hundred so words or so, is actually the longest book in the New Testament. That's pretty cool, right? That's good Bible trivia. Now, what is then the second longest book? Acts. Hey, you guys are smart. You guys just like first service. Again, you catch it. Acts is the second longest book. That's right. Acts is not Matthew, even though both have 28 chapters. But uh, if we measure by simply the number of words, though technically if you said Matthew, I'd give you partial credit because it has the second most verses. Okay, but Acts actually has third most verses, only 1,006 verses. This is really nerdy. But by number of words, it is actually the second longest book. Now, is that cool? The first, the longest New Testament book is Luke. The second longest New Testament book is Acts. And why are those two significant? They're written by the same person. Bam! You guys are good. We're going to keep the Bible in our name, okay? This is legit. San Francisco Bible Church, okay? You guys kind of know your Bible. You saw that report recently about evangelicals don't know their Bible? You guys saw that? It was very embarrassing. Uh, you should take the quiz. And if you fail it, uh, you need to go to our Sunday school classes, please. <laughs> but... The 20, in fact, a lot of times when we think of the New Testament, we think of Paul's writings, right? Paul wrote so many of the New Testament books. And you might have guessed, that if, if we're going to guess who wrote most New Testament, we'd say Paul. But we're, we'd actually, by number, by number of books, yes, but by number of words, actually, Luke wrote the most words. Luke wrote 27% of the words of the New Testament. That's pretty significant. And so that's kind of just nerdy Bible trivia, okay? Uh, all of the words of the New Testament, no matter who they're written by, are inspired by God, worthy to be studied. Equal value, equal weight, because it's God's word. However, it's just kind of cool. It's like, would you read a book and not read 27% of the book? No. Oh, not unless you're high schoolers. You guys like, I just read the cliff notes. Uh, you'd want to read the whole book because you want to get the whole picture. And so Luke and Acts, they are, uh, you know, my uh, keynote game is not strong today. 27% of New Testament. Now, so what we're going to look at today is in this book of, oh, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Anyways, and the author of Luke Acts is the large, which is Luke, is the largest contributor to the New Testament. And with that in mind, I hope that's just kind of neat why we're studying Luke. But in a very natural way, it's a very natural way. It's a natural, almost next step from where we have been. 
for the last three and a half years, we've been studying Isaiah, right? And Isaiah is about what? It's about the salvation of God in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We've been looking about this, the many promises of the Messiah, the promises of God's plan of salvation for his people, and the promises that it would be fulfilled in this one called the Messiah, the servant. And we've seen all these prophecies. Three and a half years is a long time, by the way. But studying Isaiah, even though, we would, even though we have the New Testament, but when we studied the book of Isaiah, it was kind of like watching TV in black and white. Anybody remember watching TV in black and white? Yeah, a few of you, okay. All right. It's kind of like watching TV in standard definition for those of you that are younger, okay? Standard definition. It's like, whoa, that's, that's something wrong with this TV. Uh, but when color TV came out, all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, what we saw fuzzily is now like crystal clear, or like just like from when you're from SD to HD. Uh, it's like, also, whoa, I did not know that life is that real. You know, when we go to Luke today in the next couple of years, it's going to, when we study the, the gospel, we are really seeing the salvation of God and the person of Jesus Christ in full color. We're seeing basically the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. We're seeing it fleshed out. We get to see the very person who is prophesied, the Messiah, the Messianic servant, in full details, in every aspect. The things that are stated in a veiled way in Isaiah are now we get to see in living color. And I think uh, that should excite all of us because we've been on Isaiah and we've been looking at all these prophecies. But we should excite us because we get to see Jesus. You know, for many of us here who are, call ourselves disciples or Christ or Christians or followers of Christ, this book is a picture, gives us a clear picture of the one who loves us and the one whom we love. You know, when you love someone, just think your spouse, basically, you love looking at them all the time. You, know, you like looking at each other, right? And especially, uh, yeah, I know some. Yeah, yeah, even the old folks, you know, older married folks, like, yeah, yeah, I still do like looking at them because they're the object of our affection. We like looking at the objects of our affection. Jesus Christ is the object of our affection. He should be. We're called to love God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and strength. That's our. That's the greatest commandment. We're to love Him, and we love Him in God's Son. And so this book will show us the one we love. And, and I, I hope that as we, my first, as we study this gospel, we're going to grow in our understanding of who Christ is. We're going to see details about him that we, we didn't know before. Every time, I'm sure many of you have already studied Luke before, you've read Luke before. But as we go through it once uh, again, or newly, or particularly in depth, you're going to see aspects of Jesus that you never saw before. And I hope you'll, you'll just grow in love for him. And you'll want to, you know, motivate you, encourage you to continue to, uh, live your life for him. Well, Luke begins this gospel. Before he gets to the actual story of Jesus, he begins with what's called a, pre- a preface, an introduction, uh, sometimes called a foreword. And in these first uh, four books of the, of the New Testament, we're going to actually, or in this gospel, we're going to see four words. So it's going to a little four-word outline. I'm going to look four words from the foreword of Luke. Did you see how I did that? Okay, <clears throat> that inspire us to study this gospel book. I know, I know. It was pretty cheesy. Uh, cheese is not strong, okay? Uh, anyways, four words. So four points, four-point outline, four verses, four points. Luke begins his gospel explaining, basically, the nature of this writing, the sources for his writing, the methodology of his writing, the recipient of his writing, and the purpose of his writing. All these things that we're going to find here, I'm going to kind of boil it down into uh, four points, our four words. So let's look at the first word. What's the first word we want to focus on in this forward that inspires us to study this gospel book? The word is account. 
The word is account. The account of Luke. This book, this gospel, is an account of Luke. Luke is an account of the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. That's what this book is. It's an account of the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Verse 1 says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. Verse 1 introduces the reader to the nature of this writing. What is this kind of writing? He's basically explaining what is this to his, uh, his recipient. This book is, falls under the classification of writings that's called historical narratives. It's a narration, a, a consecutive account of what took place in history. The author begins, though, by telling his reader that this isn't the very first account of history. Particularly, it's the historical narrative of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, which we'll see in the rest of the book. He says that there have been many others who have compiled accounts. And that's not surprising because Jesus Christ was a very significant figure, especially to the founding of Christian faith. And so by this time, Luke, which is right, he's writing about 60, early 60 AD, he's writing this book and he's, he's mentioning that there have been many others who have compiled an account of the things that have accomplished among us. Among of these accounts that uh, Luke may have been referring to were the Gospels of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. They were uh, probably in existence at this time. There were probably others as well, but those, since they were neither inspired by God nor preserved, we don't have any record of them today. But Luke implies that there were others. There might have been not just whole books, but there were probably fragments, written down records of, of some of the oral traditions about Jesus Christ, because Christ lived about 30, had lived some 30 years prior. And so the appropriate question at this point, is, since this is an account of the things accomplished among us, we ask ourselves, whose account is this? I've already told you that it's Luke, but let me show you how it's Luke, or why we believe it's Luke. And from the introduction to Acts, we see there that it's a reference that this is the second book that he addresses to Theophilus. So since this is the first, this, since Luke mentions Theophilus, Luke and Acts are designed to go together. One's the first book, one's the second book, both designed to go to Theophilus. And in the book of Acts, we see uh, that the and we see, actually, when we look at Luke and Acts, when we look for the author, technically, these books are anonymous. No one, uh, there's no mention here that says, I, Luke, am writing this to you, Theophilus. Or uh, this was, or I and Paul were, Luke and I, or I, Luke, and Paul went, went on this missionary journey. But there are what we call the we sections of Acts. During Paul's missionary journeys, where the writer of Acts would write, we then did this, we did that. And so implying that the author of Acts was a missionary companion of Paul. That's, so we get that. So he's a missionary companion. So he's a missionary co-worker of Paul's. And so we have a list of some of them, Paul's missionary co-workers from Paul's epistles as well as from the book of Acts. And that list comes out to about seven, eight individuals. However, you can, we could boil down those seven, eight individuals to just two. Because of all those seven or eight, the majority of them except for two are referred either in Luke or Acts in the third person by the author. So since he refers to him as third person, that person is not the author. He would have otherwise referred to him as first person. And that leaves essentially only Luke and Titus. Those are the only two Paul's missionary companions. They traveled with him, Paul, during his missionary journey, who are not mentioned in the third person plural, third person singular. So it leaves these two. We believe it's Luke because the consensus of the early church, early on, the early church, uh, uh, the early church, Tradition held that Luke was the author. Even though it could have been Titus, it could have been Luke, but the church uniformly, unanimously agreed that 
It was Luke as early as about 160 AD was the first document, the historical document that we have attributing this gospel to Luke. In fact, there's no one else attributing the gospel of Luke to anyone else. In fact, by 200 AD, it was already uniformly agreed by the church, church throughout uh, uh, Christendom at that time that this gospel was written by Luke. No one even bothered, wrote that, oh, it's Titus. Here we are 2,000 years later saying it could be Titus, but really no one even said that back then. So this book is written by Luke. What do we know of Luke? Well, what we know of Luke is found in three references by the Apostle Paul. Three references to explain who Luke is. In Colossians 4.14, he's called the beloved physician. So Luke is someone who is close to Paul. He was one of his missionary companions. So understand, he's beloved. He's someone who's dear to him. And he's a physician. He was a doctor. Uh, <clears throat> he was a doctor. Equally, or in that same ch- book, Colossians chapter 4, verse uh, 11 Paul goes on to list some of his co-workers who were of the circumcision. That means his Jewish co-workers. And he lists like two of them. And he says, that's all I have. And three verses later, he then lists Luke as his co-worker. And since he did not list Luke as part of the, his work co-workers from the uh, circumcision, then it is believed that, therefore, by, uh, by logic, that Luke was a Gentile. Uh, some... Uh, that he was a Gentile. Most likely, he was a God-fearing Gentile. A God-fearing Gentile, the term that's used much in Acts, was someone who was a Gentile, but who identified with the Jewish faith. They were someone who probably went to the synagogues. They had studied it and found the, the teachings of the Mosaic Law significant. They followed it. They tried to observe the sacrificial systems. They tried to basically follow the Jewish faith. Uh, it could have been that they were, became Jewish converts and actually becoming circumcised, but it doesn't necessarily require that. He was just simply likely a God-fearing Gentile. And some along the way, along the way he became a believer in Jesus Christ. And so he compiles this account. In this account, uh, Luke is basically an orderly account of the things accomplished among us. And this word accomplished, in our English, it doesn't really say much. It just implies that, basically, he said, these are the things that happened. But this word accomplished in the Greek, is a Greek verb that speaks of fulfillment. These were the things, you could translate it, these were the things that have been fulfilled among us. You can literally translate that. And some English translations take it that way. That this is how, and the implication is for, by Luke is that this is how God's plan of salvation was fulfilled in the person and life and death of Jesus Christ. Here then is a major theme of Luke. We've already seen the, authors, the author of Luke, but here's the major theme. That Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan. All throughout the Gospel of Luke, we see many references to how uh, something that Jesus did was a fulfillment of, some, of, pro- of prophecy, was a fulfillment of, of this. <clears throat> or these things had to be fulfilled in this way, implying that Jesus came to fulfill God's plan. In fact, Luke alone, uh, Luke alone records that when Jesus began his public ministry... When he began his public, he entered the synagogue in his hometown, Nazareth, and they gave him a scroll. Remember what scroll that was? Isaiah, good, you guys haven't forgot. Isaiah 61, he read verse 1 and 2. And what then did Jesus say? He said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Luke is the only one who records this. 
He discovered it. He put it, and he includes this because he wants to show us in many other ways that Jesus came to be the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. It's not, of course, that Matthew and Luke and uh, Mark and Mark and John don't convey that too, but this is primarily uh, Luke's emphasis. This is his emphasis. What's more, there's a prevalent Greek word in Luke and Acts uh, that is uh, translated in must or it is necessary. It's, a, it's almost like a, it implies that this had to happen. There's this particular word, the Greek verb is day, but uh, it's often translated this must, or it is necessary, or it is needed. Of the 101 times that it appears in the New Testament, 40% of them, 40 of them, are found in Luke and Acts. Significant. And so what takes place in the life and ministry of Jesus, it was what must take place, according to Luke, by the predetermined plan of God. That this had to happen because God planned it. God promised it. And so, for instance, in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus said, this is one of uh, Luke's records of what Jesus said. He said, I must preach. That's our verb, day. It is necessary that I preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. See, even Jesus himself knows that he came for a very specific purpose. He came to fulfill a, a predetermined plan of God. He must preach the gospel. That's why Jesus came. He came to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, how people can enter and become a part of his kingdom. Furthermore, in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, we read this, that the Son of Man, this is Jesus speaking again, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. See, Jesus himself knew that he must be. It was, it was a necessity for, for God's plan to be fulfilled that he suffer, that he be rejected, that he be killed, and that he be raised on the third day. This is all God's plan. Jesus himself is very much aware of this. And Luke makes sure that he records these kinds of references with this using the word, it is necessary, it, is, it must happen. So Luke is an orderly account of the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation in and through the life and death of Jesus Christ. There's a little uh, note I want to add to the end of verse 1. There. It says that these are the, this is an account of the things accomplished among us. Now, when it says among us, these things have been fulfilled among us, it could refer to the first generation of eyewitnesses, uh, those who saw Jesus' life. But since the author is going to include himself, exclude himself from eyewitnesses in the next verse, this word among us really goes, has a further implication. It includes all future generations that are affected by the fulfillment of God's plan. These are the things that were fulfilled among us. Not necessarily that they, so they happened among us, though he's writing 60 AD, so he was alive, uh, probably alive, uh, if maybe young, young when Jesus was walking on earth. But he's saying that these things have been fulfilled. There's, there's a, I don't like to talk about Greek tenses too much, but there's a Greek tense here, okay? A perfect Greek, perfect tense. And that tense is significant because it implies this, that something happened in the past that continues to have a, make an impact in the present. That's the synonym of a perfect tense. Something happened in the past. These are not just things that happened in the past, but they happened in the past, and they have an impact even to the present. Even to Luke's day, 30 years later, these things have to have been fulfilled, keep impacting our life. And so by implication of this, this would not only, this impact of G, the things that were fulfilled impact Luke's generation, but they would include future generations like ours today. Believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, you and I are just as impacted and affected by the life 
and death and ministry of Jesus Christ as a fulfillment of God's plan as much as Luke or every generation in between of Christians. You, this book has significance for you and me. It's not just an ancient book. It's kind of, I'll just kind of, it's interesting to study from a historical perspective. It is wonderful in that way as far as historical documents go. But this is more. It's a book that has relevance. It's a book that has greater relevance than almost any book that's written today. This book continues to have significance because of the, it is an account of what took place, what, was, what has been accomplished among them. All right, so let's take a look at the second word. There's a second word of this book, and that is the book, the word authority. We see the word authority in verse 2, or the implication of authority in verse 2. Luke is an authoritative account based upon the reports of firsthand eyewitnesses. This is significant. Uh, Luke goes on to write, and he talks about the, the many books that were compiled, the accounts that have been compiled already. Just as, verse 2, they were handed down to us, by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So he, he includes himself in the us who have received these accounts from those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. So this tells us that he was not an eyewitness. But the gospel here is an, is an historical narrative. And the, like all histor- histories, just think of any history book you might read, its credibility as a history book depends on its sources, Right? Who is writing this? What, why, uh, who is writing? Where are they writing it from? Are they credible eyewitnesses? The compiled accounts of Jesus' life and ministry were credible because they were handed down basically as oral traditions by those who were eyewitnesses. Some people say, oh, no, uh, these, these compilations, these are 30 years later. He's asking eyewitnesses 30 years later to remember what they saw. But it, goes to, it shows an, uh, an unawareness of the strength of oral tradition in the New Testament days. Because back then, they did not have books galore. There was, it was not easy. You didn't have your own Bible at home. In fact, you think about it, though. Many people, especially Jewish people, they put to memory, they memorized huge portions of the scripture. That's why they would be, that's why young Jewish men would repeat the great Shema of Deuteronomy 6. They would just repeat it from memory because they knew the scriptures. Think about Acts chapter 2 when Peter got up and he preached the sermon. Did he just look at his eye scroll and say, oh, oh, yeah. Uh, let me, I bust out all these verses for you. But you look at Acts chapter 2, there's like left and right verses. He's not looking at his Bible. It's just flowing out of the memorization of the scriptures. And this is how oral tradition was kept. So all these stories about Jesus that happened in about 30 AD were being memorized. They were passed on word for word. They were being taught. And every generation would commit them to memory and pass it on. So these eyewitnesses passed on others. And of course, this is only 30 years later. So there were still some eyewitnesses around. John's still around for sure that can confirm these events. They handed it down. And those eyewitnesses then made up these compilations their records, their stories made up these, this record. And notice it's not just one eyewitness, but several eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses and servants of the word plural. Now, there were many eyewitnesses beyond just the 12, but Luke is referring here most likely to the apostles because he uses that term servants of the word. These are eyewitnesses and servants of the word. The same phrase for beginning uh, that is used here, those from the beginning, he's using Acts one twenty two in the selection of the apostle to replace uh, Judas Iscariot. 
And so most likely the beginning here is also referenced to, uh, in the context of apostles. These, these who had seen from the very beginning, that is John the Baptist's ministry, when he began prepare, calling people to prepare the way for the Lord, these eyewitnesses then became servants of the word. They became ministers of the gospel. They were servants. They, they, they were those who preached and taught the word of God, the word about Jesus Christ to others. They basically told others what they saw and what they heard from Jesus. This word servant is not the usual word for servant, but it's a related word. It's an unusual word, actually, uh, that has the general sense of an assistant who carries out the will of another. It's just simply an assistant who carries out the will of another. So these apostles became, who were eyewitnesses became assistants to Jesus who carried out his will. In fact, this word uh, translated servant here is used of the apostle Paul by Jesus in Acts 26.16. There, Acts 26.16, Paul's re- recounting what Jesus said to him on the road to Damascus. And he says this, that Jesus, this is what Jesus said to him. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister. That's our same word here. Someone assistant who calls along to carry out the will of another. He's an apostle and a witness not only to the things which you have seen, but also the things which I will appear to you. So the apostles served the Lord Jesus by going out to tell others what they saw, what they heard. And so the historical narrative that Luke compiled is based upon first-hand eyewitness source material. And that is significant. Because this is what gives his gospel, at least humanly speaking, authority. It has authority because it is inspired by God, that alone. But humanly speaking, from a human standpoint, from a, maybe even someone of an apologetic standpoint in our day, we might say it has a, a credibility because it's based upon eyewitness source material. His authority is no less than apostolic authority. Those who, these apostles who were personally called by Jesus, they watched Jesus, they heard Jesus, they lived with Jesus, and they were sent out by Jesus to tell others about Jesus. You know, that's one of the common challenges even that we face in our Christian faith sometimes, is sometimes, or one of the common challenges we face in the Christian faith, is that sometimes we have doubt. Sometimes it's doubt within, sometimes because of uh, trials or circumstances in our life, but sometimes it's doubt from others. Someone else may come to us and say, you know, you say you believe this or believe that or believe this and that, and why do you believe that? And we say, well, what the Bible tells us, right? The Bible tells us this is God's word. And then someone is going to challenge you eventually and say, well, how do you know that's really is true? How do you really know? Because it says it's God's word. How do you know that's true? How do you know that? And we would simply ask ourselves, how do you know that any historical event is true? How do you know that what this, this book records is true? How would you know what Josephus wrote is true? You would simply go and then ask yourself, well, what is it based upon? You know historical events are true if they are based, the more they are based upon firsthand eyewitnesses. And of course, human beings can make mistakes. Okay, no doubt about that. But the more eyewit- first-hand eyewitnesses you have attesting to the truth of a matter, the more credibility that you have to the truthfulness of a document. And the, that's what we have here with Luke. He doesn't just go to one eyewitness. He's gone to several eyewitnesses. There's several traditions that have been recorded and put down. Luke <clears throat> based his <coughs> on first-hand eyewitnesses. He would have had, most likely still had access uh, to Matthew uh, he, he could, most likely could have access to some of Matthew's material or Mark's material. Um, John was still around. He would have, could have talked to Peter. Peter was uh, still around. Matthew, 
Levi, uh, John, the Apostle John was around. Paul was certainly around, and Paul saw uh, Jesus too. And there was probably others. He could have maybe talked to Mary as well, uh, who had a firsthand experience with Jesus Christ. And all these oral traditions, all these testimonies come together, and the, their agreement on the details of Jesus Christ is, becomes a very compelling argument to the historicity of all that Luke records. If they were lying or mistaken, then we would have expected some other uh, eyewitness testimony at that time to have written something, to refute them, to somehow be a contradictory witness. But we have zero wit- records of such testimony. There is no contradictory testimony to them. No one ever wrote, well, oh, uh, we don't have like some, uh, some record of someone saying, oh, no, Jesus Christ did not exist. Jesus Christ of Nazareth did not exist. I don't believe, or he did not say, Jesus Christ, he did not die on, on, on the cross. Jesus Christ did not die, rise from the grave on the third day. Jesus Christ did not teach these words. He, he actually, they were all made up by his apostles. We have no records of this. There is no firsthand eyewitness accounts. But here, today, we have four eyewitness accounts of what took place in that day. Matthews. A first-hand eyewitness, John's first-hand eyewitness, Mark, who has based his his testimony on Peter's uh, first-hand eyewitness, Luke, who would have who basically we're going to find out he did a he researched everything, but he had access to Paul as well. All these were first-hand eyewitnesses, and these four gospels together, four different books, four different authors, all come together and provide a compelling testimony to the credibility of what took place in the days of Jesus Christ, even though it was some 2,000 years ago. The Gospel of Luke is an authoritative account because it is based upon these eyewitness testimonies with whom Luke had spoken and researched. Well, that's the authority of Luke, the authority of Luke. Our third word about Luke is in this forward is the approach of Luke, the approach of Luke. Uh, I almost chose accuracy, but really what Luke reveals here in verse 3 is his methodology, this is his method. This is how he went about what he wanted to study. If you ever want to write a history, you have to, you should probably, in your forward, you probably write, well, this is what I did to record, figure out what happened. I, I went to this source material. In fact, if you're going to write a history, you should probably find as many source materials as possible to write down, uh, to, to put together your book. So Luke is an accurate account compiled through a careful or investigation and organization. Verse 3, he writes, It seemed fitting for me as well having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order. Most excellent Theophilus. This is kind of neat. Uh, just, this is the first and only place in the gospel that the author refers to himself. Uh, he also, this is the only place that he also refers to the person he addresses the gospel to. Now, we've already mentioned that the author here is Luke. He's, uh, it seemed fitting to him to have investigated everything then to write this, put, write this down. But we see this mention of, the, of this recipient. Most excellent Theophilus. Who is Theophilus? Let's talk about Theophilus. The recipient of this letter is this person named Theophilus, a, a man. Uh, <clears throat> the title, Most Excellent, uh, is used in Acts of, of three times, and it's always used of someone who is a political ruler, a governor usually. Uh, some of them, so this title is used of a person of high political rank, someone who had power, perhaps even one who might have financed Luke's gospel because writing these down, writing down, getting scrolls, getting uh, all this, the research done, the travel, probably was not, uh, was not cheap. It would have required some significant expenditure of money. And so from verse 4, 
we can also conclude that Theophilus was already a believer in Christ. Verse 4 speaks about how you would know that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. This one was already uh, someone who had, who had learned, who had been a disciple of Christ. He had already been, had learned about Christ. And so he's now, uh, he's now receiving this as a believer in Christ. The name Theophilus is a Greek name. that means friend of God. Um, some think that it's a, just an anonymous term that just refers to anybody who's a friend of God, anyone who's loved by God. Uh, but the title Most Excellent is a, is a very specific political ruler title, and so it's most likely it's referring to a specific person. Now, both Jews and Greeks were called Theophilus in that day, but Luke's emphasis in this letter, in this, in this epistle, in this gospel, uh, <clears throat> with, with the emphasis on Gentiles being included in Jesus' kingdom, most likely point that to his purpose, that Luke, as a Gentile, is writing to a fellow Gentile, a Gentile who had converted from Judaism, a God-fearing child, Gentile, and who converted from Judaism to Christianity, or really followed Judaism to its logical conclusion, to its theological conclusion, that is, Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. Now back to our, so that's Theophilus. But his names will come out a little more, his background. Back to our main point. In verse 3, Luke reveals his methodology in this gospel, which results then in an accurate account. What's his methodology? Well, let's look at Luke's approach today. We can, can basically categorize Luke's approach into two parts. There's his investigation, and then there's his, the composition. The investigation. First of all, his investigation of the facts. The word he used for investigation means he it means to follow. It's kind of like he followed the trail. You could, he followed closely the, the different events. So he followed closely the testimonies of all the past events concerning Jesus Christ. He investigated everything, it says us. That is every eyewitness, every compilation, every oral tradition, everything that he could get a hand on or, or ear for. He would research, he would locate as much every person he could talk to. He would investigate everything, he says. Furthermore, Luke investigated everything carefully. Carefully, this... <clears throat> This adverb is also translated accurately. In fact, it's used in Luke, used by Luke in Acts 18.25 of Apollos. Remember Apollos? Apollos was one who was basically preaching, and he was speaking and teaching accurately or carefully the things concerning Jesus. Same word. Lastly, Luke investigated everything carefully from the beginning. Now, it's interesting. This word from the beginning is a little different from the beginning the word beginning earlier. And so some think that this has a different meaning. But the idea here is that Luke studied the life of Jesus completely, completely, from, from top to bottom is his picture. From, he covered everything from the life of Jesus as an infant to his birth, actually to the, before his birth, all the way to his resurrection and ascension. Luke covers the whole gamut of the chronology of Jesus' life. What's more, because he's so uh, careful in, in, in speaking of everything that he could get a hand on, Luke includes in his gospel several records of significant event in Jesus' life that the other three gospels simply do not record. Now, the other gospels also have unique uh, events as well. But Luke has some, several significant events that are unique to him. And I'll just share with you just a couple because you just, I think you, when you read them, you're like, wow. I did not know. You, you should know all these. Uh, well, you probably know many of these events. But these are only found in Luke's gospel. If Luke wasn't written, 
you would have zero idea that any of these things happen. First of all, when it comes to the birth narrative, everything in chapters 1 and 2 of Luke are unique to Luke. Only Matthew and Luke talk about Jesus' birth. But everything that Luke writes, it's all different from what Matthew wrote. It's a different, it's different, we can tell it's different accounts, different oral traditions that he's putting together. Luke's account, all that we learn about his appearance, the angel's appearance to Mary comes from Luke. The angel appearing to, to uh, Zach, Zacharias, or Zacharias uh, John the Baptist's father. It's all unique to Luke, all that birth narrative, and then the Luke 2 to 2, the, uh, the census, and all those things. There are many stories, uh, events, Martha and Mary, you know, where Mary chose the better thing. Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus climbed up the sycamore tree to get a picture of Jesus. The road to Emmaus, and we'll talk about that a little later, it's the sequence of that. Uh, we see several parables, many parables, that are included in Luke and nowhere else. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Man, that's significant. That's part of our, even our English language today. The prodigal son. How much is that a part of our language? Um, the Pharisee and tax gatherer. We, we looked at that and the significance of the contrast between the humble, follow, humble sinner who repents and follows Jesus Christ. All these, these events and more were unique to Luke because he was careful. He strove to be accurate. He strove to investigate everything. As a result of his careful investigation, then Luke then recorded what he gathered. He wrote it down. So we go back to the investigation. We see now his composition. He writes simply in his composition. This is how he composed it. It seemed fitting for me as well to write it out for you in consecutive order. So he wrote it out. He wrote it out in an orderly manner. The fact that he wrote it out shows the significance because not many things were put down in words. It was very expensive to put down these words. It required expensive scrolls. It required inks. required time. But he wrote it out. And he wrote it out in a consecutive order, in an orderly manner is the idea. What does it mean then in an orderly manner? Well, there's two general senses. In Luke, the, Luke is written from what's known as a generally chronological order. Generally chronological order. <clears throat> that if you look at the general events that happen, it's basically practically in chronological order. Everything practically happens right after the other. There are a few places where it's slightly distinguished, but the, Luke does that for a very specific purpose, and we'll point those out as we come to them. But he traces the events of Jesus' life from his birth to his ascension. There's also in Luke a consecutive order from a, a geographical progression, a progression from Galilee, Nazareth, all the way to Samaria, the surrounding uh, regions of Galilee, and then to Jerusalem, heading to Jerusalem. And so for an outline of this book, we want to give you an outline. I'll give you a simple outline, okay? We could, uh, the commentaries, you read commentary, they'll give you some pretty detailed outlines. I want to give you a two-point outline. And two-point outline that's just based on this verse, Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke stands out from the other Gospels in that he emphasizes that Jesus has the Son of Man. He emphasizes that he's, the, he's a human, human being. Yes, he's the Son of God, but he also comes as he's born and takes on human flesh. He's a full human being. But why did he come? Well, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And, this, and we can divide Luke basically into two parts. That first, Jesus came to seek the lost. In chapter 1 through chapter 19, verse 27, Jesus is seeking the lost. His, after his early birth and, uh, his birth and early life, we learn of his ministry in Galilee, where he begins teaching people of why he came. And he calls them to repent and believe in him. He calls people to follow after him, to take up, to deny themselves, take up their cross, 
and follow him. He begins to, and, and so <clears throat> he begins, as he along the way, he begins to face increasing rejection from people. And so that in chapter 19, verse 28, that's where the, Luke, the gospel of Luke basically turns the corner. Jesus then starts heading to Jerusalem. Jesus, who is the Messiah. And you remember, the Messiah is the Messianic king. He's supposed to be the king. And all the prophecies of Isaiah tell us, where's his throne? Going to be in Jerusalem when he comes back. So he heads to Jerusalem where he ought to be enthroned. But instead of being enthroned, he's rejected and crucified. He's rejected and crucified by whom? By the very people whom God had chosen to be his blessing upon the families of the earth. The descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people, Jesus' own people, rejected him and nailed him to a cross after handing him over to the Romans. He rises from the dead. He makes several appearances before his ascension. But Jesus went to the cross to save the lost. He died. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, he said he must suffer and be killed and rise from the grave. Why? To save people for his name, to save a world of sinners. In the final product, Luke's approach of careful investigation and orderly composition results in a thorough and accurate record of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And this is all done to accomplish one purpose, and this is our final word. And this, this word is assurance. That is, we see in verse 4 the assurance of Luke. Luke is an authoritative, accurate account that gives assurance of the truth. <clears throat> verse 4 says this so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught when we study the Bible when we study any book of the Bible we want to make sure that the, we love it when the author tells us why he's writing because it gives us the context tells us his purpose it, it colors how we interpret the rest of this book because Luke is writing the gospel he's recording the life of Jesus but he's writing for, for a specific purpose it's so that you, the reader may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught this is the aim of his gospel for Theophilus, for future readers, that you may know the truth about what you have already been taught, what you've already learned, what you've already heard from others. The ESV translates this as that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been, that you have been taught. The idea is certainty. The idea is insurance. Now, as I mentioned earlier in the previous point, Theophilus had already been taught some truth about Jesus. He's already been a, a follower of Christ. He's already a believer. He's heard. He's learned from others. But Luke writes so that Theophilus can have certainty or insurance of the things that he has learned. It implies for us that there's some doubt in Theophilus. And in brothers and sisters, as followers of Jesus Christ, have you not ever had doubt? Have you ever had a lack of assurance about the truthfulness of the things that you believe? I can tell you when, you tend to, when we tend to feel it. When we're not walking with the Lord, we're not in his word, we tend to feel a lack of assurance. But another time is usually when we go through trials. When we go through trials, that's usually when we start questioning the certainty of the truths of God's word. We read his promises and we say, is this really true? For Theophilus, there's a setting. There's a setting that I believe that uh, commentators and I also agree with for why Luke wrote his book. The scenario in those days was that the Christian faith was founded upon the Christ. We say the Christ, but really it's, he was founded on the Messiah. 
That's a Hebrew term. It comes out of Isaiah. That the Christian faith comes out is the, is the natural conclusion, the end of the Jewish faith. The Jewish Messiah they were, that they were looking for is Jesus Christ. And that's why uh, when, Christ, when Jesus Christ came, many of the Jewish people saw Jesus and responded with faith. They did believe in him. Not the majority, but some did. But as we would see, particularly for the, for, by Theophilus' day in May of the 50 or 60 AD, when he looked around in his, uh, in his settings, there were probably many Gentile believers, there were Jewish believers, but where was the rejection of the Messiah coming from? Where was the persecution of the church coming from? It wasn't coming from Gentiles. It was primarily coming from Jewish people. And so for a God-fearer like, like Theophilus, who had observed Jewish worship. He had, he had known, come to respect many Jewish people in his life. He he friends with many of them. He worshiped with them, walked with them. He's probably wondering now that here are so many other Jewish people who are rejecting the Messiah, are actually persecuting, they would have followed this, the way of this Messiah. He's probably thinking, could I be wrong? The Jewish people, they're not justly following after Jesus Christ. How could the Jewish people, the leaders as a whole, reject the Messiah? Wouldn't, if anybody recognized the Messiah, wouldn't it be the Jewish people who had the law, who had the most prophets and all of Moses and the Psalms? Of course, we would think that. And then he would wonder, can this really be a part of God's plan? That when the Messiah comes, his own people don't accept him? They reject him? Gentiles, unclean people, they come to faith in the Messiah. Luke's gospel and the subsequent work of Acts essentially provides the answers to these kinds of questions. By documenting the details of Jesus' life and ministry, Luke shows how, how in his gospel, how the Jewish people, particularly the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, scribes and Pharisees, the chief priests, rejected the Messiah and thus leading many of the people to also reject the Messiah. Luke demonstrates how Jesus came not just to seek and save the loss of Israel, but the loss, to seek and save the loss of the world. So much of Luke emphasizes people who are outside the community, the Jewish community that were coming to faith. And Luke shows how all of this would happen according to God's predetermined plan. This is all God's plan. This is the fulfillment. And he, just, and he goes throughout his gospel and does that. And this is why Luke's record of Jesus' post-resurrection appearance to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus is highlighted by Luke and Luke alone. In Luke 24, we see this record of Jesus' resurrection appearance to two disciples. And he's talking to them along the way. And they don't know it's Jesus. They, they're blinded in some way. They don't know it's Jesus. But he's talking to them, and then all of a sudden they said, don't you know, Jesus, this, our, our, uh, our, um, our, our leader is basically crucified. He was betrayed, and he was put to death by our religious leaders. But then in verse 24, first, chapter 24, 44 and 45, Jesus reveals to himself to them. And then he says, now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. There's our idea of fulfillment. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. 
See, Jesus taught very clearly, and Luke records for us very clearly, that Jesus understood that all of the Old Testament scriptures, the Law of Moses, the Prophets, Psalms, they all pointed to Jesus, and that Jesus came to fulfill them all. And he opened, and so when he, ta- he ta- explained that to his disciples, Luke's gospel shows how Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promises and plan for salvation. And that is designed so that you and I, who follow Jesus Christ, even some 2,000 years ago, later, who may be going through circumstances that may cause you to doubt, may be causing you to wonder if this is really true, this is really the truth, then Luke is written so that you may know the truth about the things that you have been taught. That you may have assurance. We have learned this morning from Luke's forward that this gospel is his authoritative and accurate account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. It's for the purpose of giving assurance of the truth to his people. And so studying this gospel will not only teach you about Jesus Christ, but it will give you an assurance of the truth of Jesus Christ. This book will, give you, uh, will strengthen your faith when it wavers, when you doubt And it doesn't have to be a major trial. It can simply just be challenged to, take, to follow what Jesus says when he says that each one of us, if you want to be a disciple of his, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. And as a, I'll give you a little personal story. As a young, as a young believer, a young college guy who started receive, had received Christ, started going to church in Seattle, uh, it was it came was point on particular seasons of the year, around this time of year, um, I would really struggle with going to church. And I would have doubts because I was thinking, well, you know, is this really what I'm going to go do? Because you know what happens else on Sundays that's pretty important to us Seattle people? Yeah, that's right. Go Hawks. All right? Go Hawks. Uh, so <clears throat> CLC Hawk football, that's, that, was, that was what we lived on back then. And it was kind of, I was, as a young believer, I was choosing to say, do I really, am I going to worship God? Am I going to, I'm going to, because if I do, I'm going to miss out on football. I'm always East Coast football. You know, Seattle games throw at 1 o'clock, so locally. But it was kind of, I don't know, it's just, but I was a young believer, please me. This was not the only trial of my life, but it was young at that time. Okay? But it was simply, a, I was being, my faith was tested. Will I follow Jesus? Will I deny myself? That's a simple question. Even when it comes to something simple as Seahawks football, for you it may be different. Maybe it's school. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's in the midst of some trial that you're wondering. Maybe you have been wanting something that you don't have and you're frustrated. Maybe you're going through health, health issues that you can never, you cannot change. Maybe you've been looking for a job, you're out of a job for a long time, and all these things are causing you to doubt. Question, is this faith that I have, is this a genuine faith? Will I follow? But when you look at the word of God, when you read the gospel of Luke, when you read it, the, the scriptures, it gives you assurance that these things are true. It gives you assurance that the, that the Christian faith, the faith in Christ, is something that's worth dying for. Someone to, worth denying yourself for. It's something that's worth giving your life living for as a holy and living sacrifice before the Lord. And I pray that as we study this book, it will strengthen your faith if for the times that you doubt. Maybe you're kind of wavering in your, fall, in your faith in Christ. 
This, this, this book will strengthen you and will help you to know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. I hope you'll join us in the next couple of years as we study through the gospel of Luke, and that it'll be a blessing to you and encourage you in your faith. And if you're here and you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, I pray that you will come to the saving knowledge of Christ, that Jesus Christ came to die on the cross for our sins, to fulfill God's plan of salvation for you and for me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths. And <clears throat> Lord, we, we're just scratching the surface. I know, Lord, I've said a lot of technical things today, very introductory matters. But I pray that, in, uh, that, <clears throat> that what has been said would be, int- would be enough to encourage your people to, to join us on this adventure in studying through the Gospel of Luke. That we would examine the life of Christ, that we'd read it uh, and that we'd study it, that we would come to know more of our, who Jesus is, your son, that he is the son of the most high, that he is the savior of the world and that he has come as the son of man to give his life to seek and save the lost. Oh Lord, we who have been recipients of already of this salvation Lord, we look forward to reading, looking, looking into this book together. We thank you for the gospel of Luke. We thank you that it's a Gentile written to Gentiles. And many of us here are Gentiles. And we, we look forward to that perspective, the encouragement, Lord, to see and to learn and, <clears throat> and to see how many of the things that we've, learned, that we've learned about Jesus are certainly true. And because uh, Luke has recorded it, and diligently so. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who does not know Jesus, we pray that through their joining with us, that they would come to understand the truth about Jesus. That Jesus came to die in place of all of us sinners. And that he came so that we, everyone, whoever you are, would believe can, through, through faith in Jesus Christ and repentance of sin, might have forgiveness of sins before a holy God and might come to have not only eternal life, but an abundant, joyful true life here on earth where we live no longer just for ourselves, but we live for our creator, for your glory, for the purposes that you set us apart for. And we thank you, Father, for this. We pray that you would accomplish these things in, our, in the years ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.